Let's turn to John chapter 3, born of the Spirit. John 3, we'll focus on verses 6 to 10, yet we'll read from the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you indeed do cause us to be born again. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is what we need in order to convert us so that we might enter your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you, Lord, that we are completely wholly dependent upon you for our salvation. And we ask, Lord, that when we understand this more, it will cause us to honor you and glorify you, cause us to rejoice in you, to praise you, and to thank you for what you have done for us. We also pray, Father, that we will be completely dependent upon your Spirit to continue to work in us and transform us, and also that we might have our loved ones understand these truths, that you might send forth your Holy Spirit to convert them, to cause them also to be born again. Show us more about these truths and give us greater understanding and conviction that we might please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Nicodemus is an example of the many who believed in Jesus' name at the festival mentioned at the end of chapter 2, 2, 2.23 to 25, the Passover festival. Many believed in his name because of his signs. Nicodemus then is an individual, a single example of the crowds that believed in Jesus in an artificial or superficial way, not in a true sense, but in some sense, in a partial sense, they believed in him. Nicodemus asserts that in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, that he knows Jesus is a teacher from God because Jesus performed these kinds of signs or miracles that Jesus performed. So he believed that much. Jesus, knowing that Nicodemus was not a convert, not yet at least, he was not a convert, he does not receive the compliment or the flattery 
that he is from God. He simply, in verse 3, tells Nicodemus what he needs to hear, that is, that he must be born again, otherwise he will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus does not understand it. Nicodemus takes it in terms of the physical reality of birth, and he says in verse 4 that I can't go a second time into my mother's womb, so what are you talking about? What are you talking about? He doesn't understand that Jesus is about spiritual matters. He's about eternal and heavenly matters, not worldly and physical matters. Therefore, he misunderstands. Jesus, understanding that, emphasizes the Spirit's role in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is, or namely, the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. By water, as we saw from last time, water is an analogy, a picture of the role of the Holy Spirit, such as from Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And then in verse 27, he says, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And the same in Isaiah 44, 3, when he says, I will pour forth of my spirit on parched ground, on parched ground, I will pour forth like water that is poured on dry and parched ground. That's the sense in which Jesus meant it in verse 5. Jesus is emphasizing the Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit's role, the Holy Spirit of God's role that is necessary for the rebirth, the regeneration, the new heart, the new spirit to occur in a man and directly at Nicodemus. This is what must happen to Nicodemus. Then, in verses 6 to 10 in our passage, Jesus will then begin to explain some more about what he means by this so that there's no mistaking what he means by these words. Verse 6, we pick up at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's using here an axiom. He's using uh, a proverb or something that is a general truth that one should know. It should be obvious if anybody has an ounce of spiritual understanding. If one is born of the flesh, then it equals fleshly things. He's saying if you are born physically, then you are constrained and restrained by physical things. If you are born of the flesh, then there will be flesh. That is the equation. Flesh equals flesh. And when he's saying flesh equals flesh, he means that that which is born naturally, that which is born physically, that which is material, will only produce those temporary and ephemeral things, only those temporary things, not lasting things, but those temporary things, which includes our sins, our sins coming from our natural state, the way we are from the time we are conceived until our coffin, from conception to coffin, this is the way we are, unless something changes. And that's the second part of his axiom in verse 6 his proverb or axiom of verse 6, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, 
if the Holy Spirit is going to do something, if he's going to produce a rebirth, a, a birth, a spiritual birth, then there will be spiritual consequences. Then there will be the spiritual nature. Then there will be that which is necessary in order to see the kingdom of God. Then we will have that which is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. If the spiritual birth has taken place, not the physical, but the spiritual birth, that is what is necessary for the rebirth to occur. The work of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this two-part this two-part axiom, this two-part proverb, that it's either one or the other, this duality, this, or the, this binary choice is true throughout Scripture. We see it true right here. We also see it true in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 of John. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 12, if we receive him, we have the right to become children of God. And then he says, those who receive him are those who believe in his name. Well, how do we receive him? How do we become children of God? How do we believe in his name? In 13, he says, not of blood. So your, your genealogy, your forefathers, your bloodline does not matter. Nor the will of the flesh, the will that is in each one of us the will of the flesh, just like he said in chapter three, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The will that proceeds or that is contained in our flesh, our natural sinful nature cannot produce the results of verse 12. Further, nor the will of man, the will of man, that is the will of another man or the will of men will not trigger, will not cause, will not produce the results of verse 12. That will not happen. But how? But of God. The apostle here clarifies a difference between that which is physical and that which is spiritual. The spiritual results of verse 12 do not happen by the physical aspects of blood, the flesh, and man. It doesn't happen that way, but the spiritual, that is God causes the birth and the spiritual benefits and results of verse 12. God does it, and God is spirit. John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Further in John, John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 63. John 6, 63, twofold options or two possibilities. John 6, 63, the people in this crowd were also misunderstanding his illustrations and his assertions and taking things 
physically instead of spiritually. So he says in 663, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The spirit gives life. The flesh does not produce any life. And whatever he's been speaking has to do with the spiritual life of eternal life. This is what he means. As we saw last time, let's see again. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. Romans 8 verse 5. The contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Romans 8 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If we see back in verse 5, if we are set on the flesh, it is contrary to the spirit. He says, the flesh, uh, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Our minds, if they are fleshly, are set on the things of the flesh. But those who are set according to the spirit will set our minds on the things of the spirit. It's either the flesh or the spirit. And if it is the flesh, verse 6 says, it is death. It produces death, not eternal life, not life and peace, but the Spirit produces life and peace. Only the Holy Spirit produces life and peace. Then the question, why does the mind set on the flesh produce death? If the outcome is death, why is it death? Verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. If we have hostility, enmity between ourselves and God, God who is life, then if we are against God who has life, we will be on the side of death. We will be for death. This is why if we are fleshly, we have hostility toward God. Then in what way does the flesh produce this hostility toward God? In what way does the flesh cause or produce enmity, warfare with God. It says in 7, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Because the flesh does not obey the law of God, therefore it is against God. And because it's against God, it produces death. Further, if because we don't subject ourselves to God's law, we have hostility. Well, why don't we subject ourselves to God's law? Why is it that we don't obey the law of God? The answer is also there in verse 7. For it, the flesh, is not even able to do so. 
the flesh is not even able to obey or subject itself to the law of God. Because we're not able, therefore we don't subject ourselves. Because we don't subject ourselves, there is hostility. Because there is hostility, it produces death. That is the chain of events. And verse 8, he summarizes, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible to please God if we only have flesh. Flesh does not produce any possibility of us pleasing God. Then one might ask, what does it look like? What is the flesh and what is the spirit? Galatians, Galatians chapter 5 Verse 16, if we only have this choice of two options, flesh and spirit, explain, what does it mean? What does it mean to be of the flesh in practical ways, in tangible ways? What does it mean? Galatians 5, 16 will explain a contrast between the deeds of the flesh and the spirit. 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, the Galatians, this is a, a, a body of Christians or several bodies of Christians in this region of Galatia. And these Galatians have professed faith in Christ. And Paul writes to them a follow-up letter in order for them to understand in the face of heresies, in the face of dissensions, in the face of false teachers who have crept in and are seeking to confuse them and take them away from the true gospel. Well, Being in Christ, being Christians, he now says that there is a warfare going on, opposition going on between the flesh and the spirit. We're supposed to walk by the spirit, but we have this opposition by our remaining residual flesh within us that desires evil things. The world does not have this this conflict or debate going on daily between the flesh and the spirit. The world just has the flesh. And we too have a warfare against the flesh. 
But now we have the Spirit. So when the flesh, either in the world or even in us as Christians, produces any deeds, it's in verses 19 to 21. Those are the kinds of sins that are committed by the flesh. And when these are practiced, no one enters the kingdom of God. When these are practiced, no one enters the kingdom of God, according to verse 21, if they they are practiced. Verses 22 and 23, the Spirit, though, when we have the Holy Spirit, these are the fruits or the consequences, the deeds of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what is the outcome of the Holy Spirit. Then, since we live by the Spirit, verse 25, we must walk by the Spirit. The Spirit gives us life, so now let us continue to walk by the Spirit. These are the two roads. These are the two ways in which one can live. That's what Jesus meant in John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, however, does not comprehend this. He does not understand what it means to be born of the Spirit. However, he should understand this role of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, Jesus knows he does not understand or does not believe it. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do not marvel. Do not marvel. Why would he marvel? He's not marveling as though he's rejoicing in the truths of God, amazed at the truth of God. That's not in the sense in which Jesus means do not marvel. Do not marvel in this context means you are marveling in doubt. You're marveling in confusion. You're marveling in unbelief. That's the kind of marveling that is taking place with Nicodemus. And Jesus confronts it and says, don't marvel about it. Why are you confused? Now, why is he confused? He is confused because when he hears Jesus' words, he's not making the connection between the physical and the spiritual. He's not making the connection. Now, Nicodemus' problem is not only his problem. His problem is a common problem with all unbelievers and even with believers when they are being controlled by the flesh. It's the same problem. The flesh produces this kind of marveling in confusion, doubt, and unbelief. It's a problem with unbelievers and also even with believers. Turn, for example, in John, John chapter 4. John chapter 4, where we have an unbeliever. John chapter 4, verse 7. Marveling, confused, in doubt about the things Jesus says. John 4, verse 7. The woman of Samaria. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. At this point, she still does not understand. Eventually she will, but up to this point, she still doesn't comprehend what Jesus is saying. Jesus says he's got the gift of God. He's got living water. He has water that will cause one never to want to thirst again, and it will spring up to eternal life. He even uses the word eternal life. And she still doesn't comprehend by verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She's an unbeliever, not understanding the connections Jesus is making and implying with her. But she's not the only one. In this very chapter, we read how the disciples were not here for that discussion between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Well, they return. They return by verse 31. They return to Christ because they went into the city to buy some food. Verse 31. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What did Jesus mean by my food? The will of God, right? The will of his Father, that that's the food, the special food that Jesus has. Jesus meant it spiritually. But the disciples, when they first heard his words, wait a minute. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Well, while we were gone, did somebody come by and give Jesus something to eat? We went to get him something to eat for all of us and for him. They're thinking physically, and Jesus means it spiritually. And what's the problem? The problem is that one does not have the Holy Spirit to give them the ability to comprehend with faith what is meant for their spiritual benefit. Furthermore, from John chapter 3, verse 7, we read the following. You must be born again. You must be born again. Look at that word must. He means this is obligatory. This is compulsory. This must happen. This must happen in this way. You must be born again. What he's teaching, in other words, 
is not negotiable. It's not optional. It's not something that you could take or leave according to your wishes or according to your whims. It's not like that. What we're talking about here is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Death. It must happen this way. You must be born again for eternal life to result, for the kingdom of God to be experienced. There is no kingdom of God, no eternal life, unless one is regenerated. It has to happen like this. Which means God is very exclusive. God is very narrow. His way is narrow, not broad to destruction, but narrow to eternal life. This is the way of Scripture. Jesus has mentioned this necessity of the rebirth in this passage, and it's very important for us to understand that unless we understand the necessity of this, we will not comprehend really anything else. Further, he emphasizes the necessity of other doctrines that must be understood and believed, but who will understand and believe these doctrines but those who are born again? For example, chapter 3, in John chapter 3 in, and verse 14, 314. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man must also be lifted up, meaning from chapter 12, verses 31 to 34, he means to be put on the cross. Jesus must be put on the cross for our redemption. Those who are born again will understand that and believe in that truth. In John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 9, John chapter 20, verse 9, upon the resurrection, it says, 20, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. The absolute necessity of his resurrection, the disciples even did not fully comprehend. They understood in a sense, but they did not fully comprehend it until he did, in fact, rise from the dead. He must rise from the dead. And in John chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 24, 424, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We cannot be true worshipers of God who is spirit. We cannot be unless we worship him in spirit and truth. Well, didn't he say that which is born of the spirit is spirit? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Therefore, our worship to God is vain. It's absolutely worthless unless we worship him in spirit and truth. We must have this spiritual rebirth and we, we must do it on the basis of truth, not on falsehood. So there cannot be any mixture of falsehood in our worship of God. 
There must be spiritual birth or rebirth and then worship God in truth. That's how important it is that we must be born again. Furthermore, John chapter 3 and verse 8. In 3, 8, he illustrates with the wind. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, right? The wind blows where it wishes. We don't control it. Certainly God controls it, but we don't control it. It blows wherever it wishes. Not to say that the wind is personal. He's using an analogy. The wind blows wherever it wants. It does so. We hear the sound of the wind when it is blowing through certain places in certain ways. We hear the sound of it, but we cannot and do not predict from where it comes and where it goes. We cannot predict accurately, perfectly. We cannot do so. The wind does whatever it wants. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Why the comparison? Why is there a comparison between the wind and the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual? Why? Because the Holy Spirit is irresistibly powerful. The, whole, the, the wind has power that cannot be resisted. If the wind is strong enough, it will do whatever it wants, and we cannot contain it. We cannot restrain it. We cannot do anything like that. Contrary to many people these days who are trying to control the weather, it is impossible. We cannot do it. We cannot control the wind. Well, just as the wind is so powerfully irresistible and does whatever it wants, the Holy Spirit does the same. The Holy Spirit moves in this individual or that individual in ways that are unexpected and unpredictable because he is powerful and irresistible. He works in that way. And this should not surprise us. This should not surprise us. If the Holy Spirit can do, is the Spirit of God, and he, if He can create the world, such as Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In Genesis 1 verse 2. If the Spirit of God is moving or hovering here and there, creating this and creating that, at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, creating this perfect world, if the Holy Spirit is creating this perfect world, then why can the Holy Spirit not do a recreation? If He can create the world, how is it that He cannot recreate the world? Well, certainly in the future there will be a new heavens and a new earth, a new physical reality which the Holy Spirit will bring about. But in the meantime... In the meantime, if the Spirit can do that in Genesis 1 verse 2, can he not recreate a man? If a man is in sin, in the flesh, can the Holy Spirit not 
transform him? Yes. Now let's see some other passages that compare and use these examples. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. 11 verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. We don't know the path of the wind. We don't know how God forms the bones in the womb. And just like that, we don't know the activity of God who makes all things. He creates all physical things. So why is it incredible? Why do we consider it marvelous in a doubtful way that God can create or recreate spiritual things? That's the point, because Ecclesiastes is about spiritual things. His main point is, don't be consumed and preoccupied with this present world, because it's vain. Look beyond the present world to the world to come. The activity of God, he makes all things. So these things are marvelous, the creation of the, the, of the human body in the womb and the work of the wind, but God is even greater. Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers flaming fire. There, he is praising God for his amazing ability, his powerful ability to create the heavens and the earth and to sustain them, right? To use them as he wishes, to use his creation. Drop down to verse 27. Verse 27 after he has explained how God providentially and marvelously takes care of all of his creatures, verse 27, they all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God is the ultimate provider of everything. He gives and he takes away. And notice in verse 29, you take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. They return to the dust when you take away their spirit, their immaterial nature. When you take that away, they're gone. However, verse 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. 
The work of the Holy Spirit is even there in recreation. The Holy Spirit's work to renew or to recreate is in verse 30. He does the physical world that way. He also does the spiritual world that way because he is, in fact, after all, the Holy Spirit of God. So why would the Holy Spirit not be active and at work in spiritual matters? Okay, well, this irresistible, powerful, and mysterious work of the Spirit is in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6. Remember, we cited 663. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So when he mentions the Spirit in chapter 6, he is indeed the active agent in producing what we are about to read. He is the active agent. So chapter 6, and we begin at verse 37. 6.37 All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. To come to Christ, according to verse 35, is to believe in Christ. Coming is an analogy of believing in him. But who is going to believe in him? All that the Father gives me. All the individuals that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. And those who come to the Son, the Son will not cast out. Let's continue at verse 45. 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In verse 44, coming to me, and even in 45, is again his way of saying, believing in me which he mentioned in verse 35. To come is to believe. To believe is to come. So verse 44, how is it that we can believe in Christ? Because he says, no one can believe in, in me or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father has to draw him for him to come to Christ. And then he will raise him up on the day of resurrection, on the last day. Further, he proves it in verse 45. It is written in the prophets. And they all shall be taught of God. When he says prophets, he means Isaiah and Jeremiah, because he conflates or puts together words from Isaiah and words from Jeremiah together in one sentence. Because the truths of Isaiah 54, 13 and the truths of Jeremiah 31, 34 are one and the same. So he puts them together in one sentence and says, they all shall be taught of God. The prophets actually even said this of the Old Testament. The prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, they both said 
these same truths that Jesus is preaching. And then Jesus interprets what he just quoted in verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They have to hear the words of the Father. They have to learn from the Father. And then they will come to me or believe in me. And so the sequence. The Father is the one who draws people by means of the work of the Holy Spirit to believe in the Son. And this happens in verse 44, by drawing them to Christ. They have to be drawn to Christ. Well, then we have to ask, well, what does it mean to draw? What does it mean to draw? Popularly, people think to draw people to Christ means you say something about Christ or say something about the Bible, say something about the gospel, mixed with, an emotional delivery, mixed with a very persuasive talk, mixed with some kind of entertainment, some kind of light show, a smoke screen, something like that, in order to woo and persuade and manipulate your hearers to hear some things about Christ mixed with these other things and make them be persuaded or wooed by that, and that's what they mean by draw people to Christ. We need to draw people to Christ. This is popularly what they mean by it. But that's not what is meant right here. That's not what's meant by here. Here it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So then the question arises, when the Father wills for the Holy Spirit to draw someone to Christ, what's going to happen? Well, we're talking about rebirth. That means the Holy Spirit will indeed be powerful and irresistible and mysterious because we don't know who the Holy Spirit will convert. And when he does so, that's what is meant by drawing. It is a fixed, powerful, and irresistible way in which God brings people to faith in Christ. Now, the irresistible part of it, notice with me this word draw occurs a couple of more times in John. And let's illustrate. John chapter 18 and verse 10. John chapter 18, 18 verse 10. In this case, the crowds, the mob has assembled and they are arresting Christ. Judas is among them. And Peter is trying to resist this arrest of Christ. John 18, 10. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. The sword that Peter drew, notice he drew the sword, which means Peter had the strength needed strength and skill needed in order to draw the sword and then wield the sword and then cut off the slave's right ear. And that he probably done by accident because the slave probably ducked or something and that's, he just caught his ear. 
Not that the slave stood still while he did it like a knife. That wouldn't have certainly not have happened. But nevertheless, Peter did actually and powerfully wield the sword. He drew it and wielded it. Chapter 21. Chapter 21. Verse 11. The same word occurs. The same word in Greek and in English. John chapter 21. In this case, Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples have gone fishing. They did not catch anything. Then they see Jesus, and Jesus tells them to throw their net over, and they will catch. Uh, um, they will have a catch from their net. So 21.11. 21.11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. In this case, Peter draws the net to land, full of large fish. He is drawing the net powerfully and successfully, right? Powerfully and successfully. So the fish, it's not like the fish were jumping out as Peter was drawing the net. No, they were caught in it and they were, if we want to say unwillingly, the fish were drawn to land, drawn to the boat. So these are examples of what it means to draw one to Christ. The wind blows where it wishes. It goes and does whatever it wants. The same with the Holy Spirit. When the Father sends the Holy Spirit to save somebody, irresistibly, the Holy Spirit produces a rebirth in the heart and a change occurs. A miracle occurs. John 3. John 3. Nicodemus does not understand. Nicodemus in verse 9. John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? How can these things be? Well, we know he has been perplexed since he started. Actually, even from the feast. Jesus was preaching the gospel, but he did not understand everything and believe everything. He just believed Jesus was a miracle worker, a teacher from God. He believed that much. And then he doesn't comprehend what, when Jesus says that he must be born again. He does not comprehend with Jesus' illustration of water. He does not comprehend with Jesus' illustration of the wind. He's still not comprehending. And he admits it. He says in verse 9, practically, how can these things be? How is this possible? Well, how is it possible? How is it possible that someone like that does not understand? Well, let's first see that it's amazing that the teacher of Israel does not comprehend this. The teacher of Israel. It says the teacher of Israel. He doesn't call him a teacher of Israel, though there would have been a council in the Sanhedrin was a council of teachers comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees who were experts in the Old Testament, 
experts in the law of Moses, expert in the prophets after Moses. They would have been the most knowledgeable among all the people about the Old Testament. But when it says the teacher of Israel, we don't know by this expression whether Jesus meant you actually, in this council of elders, you actually have the highest position or one of the highest positions. You have a very reputable position in this council of elders and you don't understand? If you don't understand, why are you a teacher? Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? It's amazing that someone in such a lofty position and someone who had such knowledge did not comprehend this fundamental truth about the nature of our salvation. Someone who is teaching the Bible to the people, someone who has a reputation, who is honored among the people, someone who claims to know what he's talking about, in fact, does not know what he's talking about because he misses the focal point. He misses the central point of what is so important and what is so necessary, so essential for our very salvation. He does not understand it. It's one thing to not understand or misunderstand certain harder truths or certain details, certain difficult passages that don't directly relate to how a person is saved from sins and receiving eternal life. It's one thing to be doubtful or unknowledgeable or inconclusive about those kinds of matters. But it's another thing to misunderstand who God is, to misunderstand who we are, to misunderstand our lostness, our depravity, our deadness in sin, and then how to escape from that. Because that is most important. And this is what he misunderstood. He misunderstood all these things in relation to God, man, and the way of deliverance through faith in Jesus Christ. He misunderstood all that. And also what brings about faith in Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit. The teacher of Israel misunderstood. Now we might ask, how is it possible for him to misunderstand? Well, for one, we have to eliminate the possibility that the Old Testament said nothing about it. He did not misunderstand because the Old Testament said nothing about these things. We see from Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Ezekiel is quite clear. He illustrates about the cleansing that they will receive, spiritual cleansing, because God's going to remove their stony heart and give them a new heart a new spirit, a tender heart. He's going to put his Holy Spirit in them. And then they will, in a pleasing way, be able to walk in the laws of God by the Holy Spirit. So Nicodemus cannot claim ignorance in terms of the facts of the matter. 
He cannot claim ignorance of this knowledge. It's right here in Ezekiel 36. It's also in Isaiah 44. To use two prominent examples, there's several others. But Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. The Holy Spirit analogy of water is used in verse 3. He is the one who will be poured out upon the offspring of the people. And when the offspring of the people are saved, they will belong to the Lord. They will name the name of Jacob with honor. They will belong to him, to the, to, to the God of Jacob. That's what will result with the work of the Holy Spirit in them because God chooses them. God <coughs> renews them by his Holy Spirit. That which was parched, will become fertile. The dry ground will become fertile soil because of the work of the Holy Spirit, thereby producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, therefore, cannot claim ignorance. But, how, uh, but can he claim that, well, it, I thought that the people could be ignorant, but there's no way that leaders can be ignorant. After all, they've gone through an arduous process of education, they have gone through all the loops and the obstacles to attain to their position. How is it possible? It's impossible after much training for the leaders of the people, the teachers of the people, to be ignorant. Can he say that? He cannot say that even on the basis of the Old Testament either because Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah actually rebukes these people, because they should know better, but they don't do better. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, 15. 9, 15. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Isaiah says that the people who are guiding the people, the leaders of the people, are leading them astray and are bringing them to confusion. You're not teaching them properly. Nicodemus, just because you're a leader and just because you have undergone training does not mean that you are invincible. It does not mean you know all things and it does not mean that you properly understand the fundamental things because your ignorance is causing people to be led astray into confusion. Malachi, Malachi 
chapter 2. Malachi also says the same. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Malachi 2, 7. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. The priest, who was one of the teachers of the people, he should have knowledge, and then men should seek instruction from his mouth because he is the messenger of the Lord. That is the proper way. However, in this case, in Malachi's day, in verse 8, you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. That is, you have corrupted these things. That which you should know, you don't know properly. And, verse 9, you are partial in these things that are in the Bible. There are some things you know, other things you don't know. Some things you teach, other things you don't teach. You are partial. And why would partiality come about? Because if you have to tell somebody he is sinning, what's typical of human nature? Unless somebody is a jerk, he doesn't really want to tell somebody else that he's sinning. What does he not want to do? Or what does he do And in order to avoid that? His flesh says, I want everybody to be my friend. His flesh says, I, want, I, I won't be so straightforward about the, the person or the nature of the sin. I'm not going to address it. I, or I won't address it straightforwardly. I'll beat around the bush. Or I'll wait. I'll wait for the right time. Let me wait until the Holy Spirit prompts me as an excuse to never address it. I'll wait for the right situation and then I'll address it. Well, that's partiality. You know what the Bible says and you are ignoring it and you're not doing what's right. Well, leaders do this all the time. It's a temptation every leader faces. Every person faces it and even leaders face this temptation of being partial about what the scriptures teach. And certainly Nicodemus would have done the same. He would have been the the same. But Nicodemus cannot say, well, I never knew that once I was a trained leader that I would be guilty and culpable of doing anything wrong or ignorant. I never knew that. He can't say that because Isaiah confronted it. Malachi confronted it. And the prophets regularly confront this kind of behavior. Furthermore, we must ask, why did Nicodemus not understand? There's another reason. Another reason is the traditions of men. The traditions of men muddy the waters so that he cannot see clearly what's happening and what's going on. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. The traditions of men. Matthew 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, 
Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by, has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. He called to himself the multitude and said to them, Hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. They did not understand here. They muddied the waters of Scripture because they had the traditions of men. They were so meticulous and preoccupied with the traditions of men, they were focused on that and were not focused on the Bible and what the Bible says. They wanted to know those things, and they let those things outside the Bible, invented by men, cloud their thinking and blind them to the words of God. What else would be a reason why Nicodemus did not understand and believe? John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This is... Missing the central point of Scripture because you want the praise of men. The praise of men. John five thirty nine. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Why is it that they miss the central focus of the Scriptures, which is Jesus Christ? And why is it that they are unwilling to come to Christ, unwilling to believe in Christ? Why is it that they don't have the love of God in them? Because, verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? When men are seeking the praise of others, when they're seeking to please others, have them pat them on the back, have them flatter them, have them give them money, have them promote them, 
Have them say wonderful things about them to others. And then the word comes back to you. When people are seeking those, those kinds of things, they're seeking the glory of men, the praise of men, and it makes their thinking confused. It distracts them. And they're not thinking about receiving glory from God, which will be from the word of God. And why is it that other men would do things like this? They would do it because they want you to also praise them because they are geniuses too. If they call you a genius, then you have to flatter them and call them a genius, right? That's how it works. You receive glory from one another. It goes back and forth. You scratch his back, he will scratch your back. It goes back and forth. He helps you, you help him. And if you are focused on that, then how is it or why is it that that other man over there is praised? Is he praised for righteousness? Is he praised for the word of God? Or is he praised because he wrote a, a wonderful article? He has a new discovery. He's an eloquent speaker. He wrote a book. And all those things in contrast, in contradistinction to what's written in the Bible. Then we have the traditions of men again. Praising other men for their own traditions, which is a danger and which must be avoided. These are the kinds of reasons why Nicodemus did not understand. And all of these have to do with sinful things, worldly things, the flesh. But there's one more reason. One more reason why. And that is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Spiritually appraised or spiritually judged. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A natural man won't accept what the Holy Spirit says. They consider what the Holy Spirit, Spirit says foolishness. He is unable to comprehend or understand for his salvation. And they are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually judged for what they do. Natural men won't accept it from the Holy Spirit. Well, then the question is, in relation to this point, well, when does the Holy Spirit overcome the natural man? When will he overcome it, as we saw from John chapter 6? The natural man won't accept it. The natural man won't understand it. But when will the Holy Spirit overcome the hard heart of the natural man? Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11. That is, if the Father and the Son will it. If the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to save someone, then the Holy Spirit will overcome the natural man and save that man, cause him to be born again. Matthew 11, Matthew 11, 25. 11, 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In the previous paragraph, Jesus condemns the cities that did not believe. But in verse 25, he praises the Father for hiding things from those cities that were condemned for not believing. In verse 25, he's praising the Father for hiding the truths of God from the wise and intelligent, meaning the fleshly or carnally wise, the worldly wise and intelligent, like Nicodemus. God hid these things from those people, but he revealed the truths of God to babes, babies, infants. He revealed them to people who were not the sophisticated people of the world, but the lowly people of the world, here called infants. And it was well-pleasing in the sight of the Father to do so, verse 26. And he receives praise from Christ from doing so. Then how does one believe? How does one understand what is necessary? Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. No one can know anything about the Son, and no one can know anything about the Father. Right? No one can know the Son, and no one can know the Father, unless what happens? Except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills, to reveal him. The son must be willing to reveal the father to someone for the Holy Spirit to be sent to change the dead heart and give that dead heart life. Those things must take place. Ultimately, it depends on the will of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit as to whether one is regenerated. Now, if these truths are this way, what should we do? We ought to preach the word of Christ to people and pray that the Holy Spirit will use that word of Christ to save the people who hear us. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. And if it depends on the Holy Spirit using that word, We must be faithful to the word and be faithful to pray for those who are hearing our word, for the Holy Spirit to transform that individual. He who has ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit says. Amen.